Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. What fills you up? A couple weeks ago, we launched into this asking the question of what fills up your cup, your life. What is it that you're putting into your life, and is it giving life back to you? My goal, really, is to ruin the Red Solo cup for you so that every time you drink from one, you examine your spiritual life, and maybe in your breath you kind of curse me. Dang it, Pastor Jeremy. Every, <laughs> you're welcome. Every time you drink out of one of these, I hope the Spirit of God reminds you of the truth we've learned over the last few weeks about what you're putting into your life. Perhaps in your experience, you've tried to find life at the bottom of one of these cups or maybe more metaphorically, just tried to find life in other things. Well, we've been studying John chapter 4 in this series and we'll continue there today in, in the gospel of John, the fourth gospel. Probably find it about three quarters of the way through the Bible or if you have version app, go ahead and flip that on and just dial it in. What fills you up? That's really the question, and that is the question that Jesus is asking of this woman that he meets, that he encounters at this well recorded for us in John chapter 4. Give you kind of a brief overview of where we were last week in the first few verses of John chapter 4. Jesus is speaking to a half-breed, a questionable woman, a Samaritan. We, we discovered last week that even though Jesus is the outcast, a traditional Jew in Samaria, Jews and Samaritans did not get along, did not like each other, he meets another kind of outcast at the well, and this woman is a, an outcast of her own society, her own culture. There at the place of encounter this well in the heat of the afternoon where other women would go in the morning. She's in here either in the middle of the day or or at some translations say in the evening. She's avoiding sort of this social hour, maybe because of the glances, maybe because of the whispers of who she is and about her. And here in this moment in John chapter 4, he treats this woman like a person of value. So oftentimes in the gospel, we see these encounters that Jesus has with the fringe people, the questionable people of society, but he doesn't treat them like their culture, the society has. He treats them as people of value. And here again, we see another example of that. He demonstrates care and compassion to this woman, even asking her for a drink of water, Seemingly simple and innocuous question, but there's so much in this culture that would lead him not to ask that question. And of course, her response, you? You're asking me for a drink? You're a Jew? I'm a Samaritan woman and you're asking me for a drink? Where are you from that you don't know the rules? That you dare to break these cultural rules? And Jesus' response isn't to answer the question. He says, if you only knew the gift of God and who it was that is asking you for a drink, you'd be asking him for the water he gives wells up to eternal life. Can you imagine her sitting in this moment going, so was that a yes or a no? Did you want water? (laughs) I'm confused. 
And after having read this story several times, I look at just the exchange. Perhaps I find humor in everything. That could be a possibility. But I'm looking at this story over and over again saying, the exchanges here on the surface are rather odd, don't you think? I need a drink. You're asking me for a drink? Yeah, that's kind of what I just did. And she says, well, you're asking me for a drink, but you're a Samar- I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. That doesn't happen. Jesus doesn't say yes or no. He says, I've got a totally different type of water for you. And she replies, well, you have nothing to draw with. Where can you get this water? Are you greater than my ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, who fed his own cattle from this well? Are you greater than that? Jesus' reply, you'll find it in John 4, verse 13. We'll pick it up there. Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks... This water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, tell, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman. I love how Jesus talks here. Believe me, woman. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, which is called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. It's an interesting dialogue they have here. I don't know that Jesus ever answers any of her questions. (laughs) But that is... So like Jesus, in his teachings throughout the gospel, there's always these double-level meanings. There's these meanings deeper than the surface conversation. And so it is here, as she's talking about her physical need of water, he is looking to her deeper need, her spiritual thirst, her need for the living water that only comes through him. And I love that Jesus is great at these types of conversations and perhaps in your life the conversation with Jesus has gone like that. You're asking him for one thing and he's saying, no, 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 I know what you really need. And I'm thankful that Jesus has grace in my ignorance of my own need for she, even even after confronted with her spiritual need, isn't grasping it. I know for me sometimes the physical needs that I have cloud the view of the spiritual and the spiritual needs that I have. And she replies to him after he talks about eternal life-giving water. She says, give me this water so I I don't have to, to come back here. 
You've got to understand, this woman, in fact, every woman of that culture, every person of that society would need water. It's not piped into their houses. Right? We have that convenience. Not only do we get it piped into our houses, we can go to the store and buy it in bottles and bring those home too. How awesome is that? This culture was completely opposite. They are not living in the Midwest. They're living at the edge of a desert, right at the edge of the Judean wilderness in Israel. This is a dry place. That the well was deep speaks to that. It was a very deep well. And we, in our, in our own mindset, think, oh, they just walk down the road. They, you know, they get a little bucket and they walk back. We can understand from maybe where the disciples went to get food, they went to the city, that this well is probably actually outside of the city and maybe a a distance from where this lady actually lived. And she would have carried the water, maybe in buckets, in the heat of the day. Who knows how heavy those buckets were? If it was for her, maybe a small one. If it was for a family, it could have been two buckets. I'm going to go with two buckets. It just makes a better story. But think about the journey. What, what is it in your life that you find yourself having to go get? You have to go get food, right? But you can store that. What about gasoline for your car? That's sort of modern-day well for us, isn't it? We find ourselves going back to the gas station. If we could ever come up with a source for our cars that we never had to replenish, never had to fill up, you know, we'd be millionaires, Right? But the fact is, most of us have gas-powered cars, and we have to go to the well called Shell. <laughs> See what I did there? Thank you. Every day, every week, we've got a little gauge that tells us when we're on empty and we need to fill up again. So imagine this conversation. Jesus rolls in with his two little red uh, gasoline buckets, you know, for his lawnmowers. Well, he was a carpenter, so maybe it was for some sort of gas-powered cutting device. I don't know. This chainsaw that totally works. And he's got his red gasoline containers. He strolls in bone dry. She's sitting there pumping gas. And he says, fill her up. What? Can you imagine this, this taking place on something that we are oftentimes in need of? And then the conversation moving from gasoline to spiritual needs? You can maybe start to feel the oddness of the conversation. And she says, well, eternal life sounds good, but I have an actual need here, so if we could get back to that. It's almost as if she downplays what Jesus is offering, and maybe not on purpose, but maybe the fact is she still doesn't grasp what he's offering her is a reality beyond what she can comprehend. There's a little bit of ignorance on her part. And she says, uh, eternal life is good, but I have a need here now. I need water, and, and I don't want to walk in the heat of the day. And I, I certainly don't want to come out with the other women in the morning. I'd rather, if you could just give that to me, you could meet my need, that would be great. Take care of this burden for me. Give me this water and make my life easier. Have you seen Jesus as that person, that kind of source in your life? And perhaps in your encounters with Christianity, there have been people who've promised that life gets easier because Jesus loves you. And if you have him in your life, then all your problems disappear. 
And in this moment, Jesus never actually gives her anything in the physical realm. He never takes care of that burden for her. Perhaps after this encounter, her burden is lighter, but she still has to go back to the well. So perhaps in her tone, it wasn't, sir, give me this water and meet my need. Perhaps it was sarcasm in her tone. Yeah, yeah, give me some of that. I'll, I'll take two scoops of that, please. Perhaps there was just disbelief in her reaction. She says, you have no resources from which to draw this water from. Where, are you go- Where in the world are you going to get this kind of water? Are you greater than what my comprehension of greatness is? Jacob, my ancestor, is pretty great. And you're saying you're greater than what I currently know? Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying to her. I'm greater than you can comprehend. Tim Keller says it this way. If you say, I can't believe in a God who fill in the blank, then you have a God that you've defined by your own comprehension. But perhaps you need a God that you cannot define by your own comprehension. And isn't that what a God should be? Shouldn't the God you serve be beyond your own comprehension, your understanding, your ability to grasp? That's what he's telling her in this moment. She says, make my life easy, and he says, I'm trying to get you to understand a reality beyond your own physical needs. So he doesn't address her, her physical needs. He addresses her spiritual needs. Let's go back to the oddness of the conversation. She says, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back here. And he says, go get your husband. What? How, how is that connected? Jesus, I need you to focus. Water. Let's get back to water. Jesus isn't overlooking her need for physical water. He's simply going to her greater need. Go call your husband. Listen, in order to make it possible for this woman to receive the life-giving water about which Jesus is speaking, it would be necessary for her to deal with the tragic nature of her sinful life. She wasn't going to receive life-giving water without dealing with the tragic nature of her sinful life. And so, surprise, Jesus says, I'm going to get all up in your business. (laughs) Right? He's about to. Jesus relates her need for water to the ethics of her sexual activity. See how odd this conversation is? He immediately goes to her spiritual needs and the brokenness of her life because Jesus cares about the whole person and we just want him to meet our felt needs and he says, no, uh uh-uh, we're going deeper than that. I know some people say religion should stick to the business of saving souls, but that's not the Jesus we find in the Gospels. He gets messy. He gets into the mess of your life. People want Jesus to, to be that life preserver thrown to you in the sea that you're drowning in, right? And I'm, I'm all for that. I think it's great. I think it's a good analogy. However, a life preserver thrown to you, drowning in the sea of life, is great, except that the sea of life is also infested with sharks. Good luck with that life preserver, right? Welcome to Shark Week. 
When Jesus is seen as simply a life preserver, it, it doesn't account for the things in life that are about to eat us up. It would be a better analogy to say that Jesus is the Coast Guard who just wants to pluck us out of the water for good. And I'm thankful in my life that Jesus didn't just throw me a life preserver. He plucked me out of drowning in the sea of life. And that's the hope that he's offering this woman. He doesn't just want to stick to the surface issues. He's getting at the heart of things. And this is the Jesus we see in the gospel. Is it easier to just heal somebody or is it easier to forgive their sins? This this happens to Jesus in the book of Matthew. He comes along and says to somebody who's an invalid, your sins are forgiven. And the religious people go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Actually, he says, you're forgiven. And they say, how are you forgiving sins? And he says, which is easier, to heal somebody or forgive them? And so he says, and be physically healed as well. Boom, just did it. Because he's saying in that moment, physical healing takes second place to spiritual healing and spiritual wholeness. I'm sure the person in need of healing is saying, God, I just, I just want to be whole in my physical body, and yet God is saying there's so much more I want to do. So in this conversation, he enters it through the complexity of her circumstances, and he enters it through one way, the truth. The truth. He will not ignore what you consider to be private issues. Right? Nothing's private with Jesus. He knows everything about you. The only person who's trying to hide it is you. And for some of you in this room, there are things you think you're so clever at hiding. You've hidden it from your spouse. You've hidden it from other people in your life. And you think you're clever and you're getting away with it. One day, it'll all be found out, whether this world or the next. And Jesus has this moment with her where he says, here's the truth, and I'm going to confront you with it. Here's what I know about the truth. It rarely comes from my own thoughts. Because my version of truth is not truth at all. Truth only has one version. And when I look at my life, I'm full of justifications and rationalizations. And truth sometimes gets fuzzy. Oh, Lord, it's a gray area. Jesus comes right to the heart of the issue. It's not fuzzy for him. So he presents her with the truth. Go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband, which is true. She doesn't. But in this moment, she's trying to be a little bit deceptive. It's kind of what we call a white lie. Are you familiar with those? Raise your hand. Some of you who aren't raising your hand are telling a white lie. She doesn't want to get into her business. This is her way of denying the truth. I don't have a husband. There's no problem here. Keep moving. I don't have one. It's not exactly the truth, but it's close enough. But Jesus knows. And he won't ignore it, and he doesn't change the subject. In fact, he tells her more about herself than she wants to know. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the person you're living with now isn't your husband. What you have told me is the truth. For the first time in her life, she's told the truth. And he doesn't condemn her for partial truths. He actually 
embraces it and says, you're, you, you took the first step, good job. How did Jesus know she had five husbands? Was he on the local gossip wire? I don't know. Well, many of you are thinking, it. well, Jesus knows everything, he's God. You're right and you're wrong. As we discovered last week, Jesus is both completely divine and completely human. But if you go to Philippians chapter 2, the writer, the apostle Paul, uh, brings to light the fact that Jesus, the word he uses, emptied himself of his divine power, relying completely on the power of the Holy Spirit in him, relying on his Father God. So while completely divine and completely human, did not access the divinity he had available to him. He did not use the cheat codes available. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm thinking, right? I love old school Nintendo. So, he, he, stop laughing. So Jesus, not accessing his divinity, is relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, is it possible, and I present to you that it is, that the Holy Spirit said, hey, Jesus, she's had five husbands and the person she's not li- living with is not her husband. He says it and she goes, whoa. And Jesus is like, yeah, I nailed that one. <laughs> have you had these moments? Perhaps you have. You're meeting with somebody and you have this gut feeling that something's not right. Hey, is there something going on in your life? Something I can pray with you about? Yeah, how'd you know? I don't know. <laughs> I just had this feeling. I just had this thought. If you had that moment where you had more knowledge about a person's situation than you really rightfully had, it's not something you had learned in the physical realm, but you just knew something else was there and you pushed on it a little bit, you prodded it a little bit and suddenly the answer came and that person's like, how did you know? Used a cheat code. You did. You accessed the power of the Holy Spirit living within you as a believer. And this is what Jesus does in this moment. He simply listens to what the Holy Spirit is prompting him to say. He says it, and she says, wow, you just read my mail. Have you ever had those moments? And she rightfully acknowledges who she, who she is and who he is. And Jesus takes her denial as a confession. I don't have a husband. And he doesn't condemn her. He says, you're right. You're right. Now let's get this train moving, he says. You've just told me truth. He's confronting her, but more, he's letting her confront herself and the truth about herself and her own need because Jesus cares about the whole person. He doesn't try to fix her. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. I'm gonna need you to move out immediately and then we can continue having this conversation. He doesn't doesn't make her change her lifestyle. He doesn't, ask her to do something else. He simply lets the truth of her circumstances and her spiritual need confront her. He didn't try to trample the great commandment on his way to fulfilling the great commission. And church people, sometimes that's what we do. We trample loving God and loving people so that we can make a disciple. And we've already decided what a disciple looks like. And so instead of loving them to get there, We go, well, let me just help you out. Let me get my hands in your business. Jesus didn't get in her business. He let the Holy Spirit do his work. And we'll see that throughout the rest of the story. 
The New American Commentary, I love the way it says it. After experimenting with five husbands, which should not be allegorized, she no longer found the marriage ritual necessary. Jewish tradition permitted three husbands, but she obviously had long passed the more lenient rule. When she said she had no husband at the time, she had in fact stumbled onto an important idea with Jesus, the idea of truth. Jesus therefore noted this fact clearly. You have said the truth. Have you said the truth to Jesus about who you really are? Have you let the Holy Spirit of God whisper to you who you really are? It's a scary proposition, I know. And so she tries to quickly change the subject. You're a prophet. I understand this. Awesome. Let's talk about something else. She changes the subject. She compliments Jesus. Hey, you're a prophet. Hey, why is it that Samaritans worship here in Samaria, but you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem? Common argument of the day. This is why they fought. (laughs) Jesus doesn't take the bait. He sees what she's trying to do. She wants to change the subject. Let's not talk about me anymore. Let's talk about you. And Jesus doesn't do it. He acknowledges it, but he says, look, the Samaritans worship what they don't know because it's just one of many gods. The Jewish God for them was just one of many gods, not a God of heritage, as she proclaimed early in the argument, but a God of convenience. They had set up their own temple. And the Jews, he says, worship what we do know. We have the history, the story. We're connected. We've had experience. We've experienced God. And this will be important. So he directly relates salvation to God's work throughout history, not just in that moment. This wasn't a conversation about national pride or uh, cultural relevance or uh, tribal Stuff He says, look, this is greater. He says, the time is coming where it doesn't matter where you worship, what, what kind of building you're in, or what location you're at. And that's what we enjoy. Christianity proclaims there is no one place to worship God, that our life is that. Now, we like to say, oh, I went and worshiped God at church. Oh, good job. Jesus isn't happier because you came into this building today. I am, but Jesus probably isn't. He says worshipers worship in a greater form, not just location. So it was with this conversation. He's saying, look, God is bigger than your location or my location. God is much bigger. And your foolish arguments will vanish at the revelation the Father gives through his Son, the Messiah. He says, True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. I've heard that a lot. I've been in church a lot. I've heard a lot of people say, hey, let's worship God in spirit and in truth. That sounds great. <laughs> what? I don't know what you mean, though. <laughs> I, it's kind of fuzzy. It's kind of Christians like to talk that because it sounds good. It makes you seem spiritual. But what does it really mean? To worship in spirit? It means that we recognize, recognize that there's a reality beyond just the physical realm. That there's a divine reality that when you have a revelatory experience, you've entered into the spiritual realm. So it goes beyond joining a meeting on a Sunday morning that though in that moment it could happen, any moment could be a spiritual moment and you step through that door into the spirit realm, the spiritual dimension, the divine reality, 
And in that moment, you have an encounter. I would argue that that's what's happening to her in that moment. In that moment, she has a spiritual encounter. And you can define spiritual encounters. Each one of us could define that experience differently. So he includes the second part, which cannot be divorced from the first. And I know as a Pentecostal, you can have all sorts of experiences too. So Jesus says, and truth. There has to be truth related to the word of God to define your experience. Otherwise, it's just that, just an experience. It's got to be founded on the rock-hard word of God. Because otherwise, it's subjective to our past experiences, other people's experiences, other people's thoughts. It had to be connected to Jesus through the written word of God, through uh, much more than her experience. Personal encounters are important. Throughout Scripture, you see personal encounters of a living God. From Old Testament to New. There's this sixth sense that you begin to develop when you step into the divine reality of those moments of God's leading. Based upon the word of God, you don't get sidetracked by simple emotion or your thoughts. And she says, sir, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will reveal all things. He'll reveal everything. Interesting how she opens that, what would be her last words to Jesus in this moment. I know. In Scripture, we like to compare things that come before and after that. So look three sentences before she says, I know. Jesus says, Samaritans worship what they don't know. Man, that girl's brave. She says, Jesus, I know, Jesus. Don't ever tell Jesus you know anything. He will correct you. So she says, I know the Messiah called the Christ is coming, and he will reveal everything at that time. And he says, listen, the time not only is coming, but has now come. This is the talk that Jesus often is found saying throughout Gospels when he says things like, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is here. What is he talking about? He's speaking of himself. The kingdom of God is at hand means Jesus is saying, I'm here. What you've been looking for, right in front of you. Jesus is pushing her beyond the meaning she thinks. And she says, I know. And he says, no, mm -mm, you don't know. And some of you in this room this morning are saying, I I know I've heard that. And the Spirit of God is telling you, no, you don't know what you've heard What you've experienced, that's not all there is. And Jesus pushes her. Because she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And he'll he'll tell everything. Verse 29, what we'll get to next week, read that. See what happens. See what she says. Some of you are going to actually turn there right now. That's fine. Jesus pushes her. What you know isn't the end of all enlightenment. And she says in this moment, my deepest desires, my longings, my my deepest satisfactions, I know will come someday when when the Messiah comes. How many of you think that? If I just, someday, it'll come. I'll just plug away. 
Some believe that in this moment, it's a revelation of shame. That everything that will be revealed is everything Jesus just said and more. At this point, she can keep it quiet, but when the Messiah comes, he'll know it all. Jesus told me I had five husbands, but this conversation's over, and I'll just go back to the way that things were, and someday it'll all come out, and I'll just be full of shame. And I think that might be part of it, but listen, I think she's actually reaching out with faith. I know, someday, what I, I long for, what's really deep inside of me, it'll all come true in the Messiah. And what about you? Those deep longings that you have in your life, that filling your cup with all sorts of experiences and relationships and money and all the temporary things of this world, you filled the cup up with hoping that it would stay full, but it never was, and you just say, well, someday, somehow, and yeah, the Jesus thing might be true, but someday, I don't know. I think she's reaching out with a level of faith, and Jesus says, I see that faith, and I'll raise you one. I see your faith, and he reaches out to her, and he says, I am he. That thing you're longing for, thing you're trying to fill your cup up with, it's found in me. I, the one you speak to, am he. Powerful words. Our band is going to come as we close and prepare to take communion together this morning. We have an open communion here at Christian Chapel, meaning you don't have to be a member of our church, but you do need to be a follower of Christ, someone who's committed their life to Christ. And in this moment, what a great moment to take that step. I think for some of you, Jesus is saying those very words to you, the very thing that you longed for, the thing that you've been searching your whole life, you haven't found it in drugs and alcohol Sex, money, relationships, good things. Good things even that we try to fill our life with. But all that that you've been looking for, by faith, now shift that faith to me. Have faith that I am he. I'm the one who fills all those things. I'm the one who fills your cup and it never runs dry. Jesus' response, I am he, Compare that throughout the Gospels to the phrases he usually says. He usually says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. He, he usually ties in the theme of the discussion. But here, this is the greatest part of it. Here, he just says, I am. He just says to her, I am. Everything you've looked for, everything that you thought you needed in your life, everything that would answer the longings you have in your soul, I'm sitting right in front of you. I am. What's that need that you have today? What's that thing that you've chased all your life that never satisfied? What's that thing that you hope will bring you life? If it's not Jesus, you're just gonna keep coming back to that well. But if it's Jesus, he'll fill your cup to overflowing. He says, I'm everything you've ever needed, ever wanted, wrapped up in me. Who's your source? Not what's your source, but who's your source? So he ends the conversation by a simple declaration. I am he. 
It was on the night that Jesus betrayed that he makes the same offer to his disciples. He took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body which will be broken for you. And in this, remember me. Remember that I was broken, that I gave my body, that I made a way for you to come back into relationship with the provider of life-giving water. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. Perhaps you've not made a decision for Christ. Well, this is the moment that you can do that. Because when we remember, it's more than just recalling memory. It's looking at and identifying with Christ's death. That's what we do as Christians. The Eucharist, it's an accepting of a death, both Christ's and ours. His literal death and our metaphorical death when we stop living for self and start living for him. Did you realize when you made that commitment to Christ, you invited him into your heart, you accepted him as your Savior and Lord, these meanings all wrap up into the moment that Christ says, this is my body which is broken for you, my death that's for you. You're remembering, you're accepting that moment. And that's what we do. In this moment, we remember and accept Christ's death as a sacrifice for ours. Jesus, thank you for your broken body, which provides a way for us to have relationship with the Father God again. Thank you that in your brokenness, there was healing in the physical realm, but even more so in the spiritual realm made available to us, that by your stripes, the prophet Isaiah said that we are healed, and it wasn't just for my physical healing, it was for my spiritual healing, that I would be whole in my whole person. So we accept that this morning, Jesus, and we thank you for it. Let's eat the bread together. And then Jesus offered them the cup. I'm pretty sure it wasn't a red solo cup. Just saying, but now you'll never read that scripture again the same. He offered them a cup. That evening that they gathered, he took the common cup, the cup representing God's wrath, and he, he flipped the script. He said, listen, I'm going to drink the cup of wrath that's for you. That because of your guiltiness, because you ran from God, you didn't obey him, you deserve wrath, the wrath of God. But I'm going to drink that cup for you. But in exchange, you have to drink my cup you drink my blood, my death. And you drink that, and you'll find life. You get the double level meaning again. In blood, there's life. How many nurses and doctors do we have in the room? In blood is life. And Jesus is saying, if you drink this, you accept life. In the bread, you accept the death, and in the blood, you accept the life. Forgiveness, wholeness through forgiveness of sin. He drinks the cup of wrath meant for us, and we drink the cup of life. That's the question he lays before his disciples. 
I would argue that's the same question he offered to this woman at the well. You can continue to drink your cup that you fill yourself from this well. Or you drink the cup that I'm offering in this moment. When I say I am he, he means I'm everything. I'm what you turn to when you're desperate and when you're happy. I'm what you turn to when you have everything and when you have nothing. I am he. Everything you've longed for, hoped for, dreamed of, I am he. Jesus, thank you. Forgive me for my ignorance of chasing things this culture and this world have to offer me that never satisfy longer than that moment. But you promise satisfaction beyond what I can even think or hope for. And so today I choose. I choose you, Jesus. I choose your death and I choose your life. And we remember today and we look forward to the life promised to us because of your death and your resurrection. Let's take a drink of the cup together. Perhaps in this moment for the first time you said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. If that's you, if this morning was that encounter for you, we applaud you. In fact, we're going to applaud you now. If that's you, you said, I'm taking that step for the first time today, we'd love to hear from you. And perhaps I've ruined you for the Red Solo Cup for the rest of your life. That was my goal. Hey, we are so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information about a deeper relationship with Christ, we would love to hear from you. Simply email nextsteps at c2church.com.